Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. Where is it that I stop and you start? What is the boundary between us? between what I think of as me and everybody else? Does an actual boundary even exist? Or is my understanding of myself as a separate unit from you an illusion, a social construction, an ego creation? Recently, we've been hearing a lot more about people who describe themselves as empaths, those who pick up and internalize the feelings, the emotions of other people. The word comes from a 1950s science fiction story and was made more popular thanks to a character of Star Trek in the 80s. But increasingly, the word is being used to describe something people are experiencing in their real lives. It's much more than empathy, which we all have. Being an empath is like having empathy on steroids. It can be destabilizing, especially when you feel pain that doesn't belong to you. And while you may not be consciously aware of it, it's as if the wall that separates and protects you from others is somehow porous. The emotions that other people are carrying, often toxic and painful feelings, leak through. The empath then takes on these feelings as if they are her own and can't tell the difference between the emotions that belong to her and the ones she unconsciously acquires from others. I guess that you start to call yourself an empath when you realize that this is what's going on. That's how today's guest, David Sauvage, talks about his own experience. David was working in advertising, directing commercials, when he was hit with a deep depression that he came to understand stemmed from his acute sensitivity to the painful emotions of people around him. We go into how David discovered that much of the pain he was carrying was not his own, and then how he learned to protect himself by creating safe boundaries, and then at times to consciously process those emotions to release them. But he did more than that. As he came to understand his own capabilities, David turned his vulnerability into a power to help heal others through one-on-one readings, teaching, and in an amazing way, through performances. Today, David has his own unique kind of theater, which he's presenting around the country. He does a very physical form of empath reading in front of a live audience, where members of the audience come up on stage and David embodies their emotional state, which can be a profound, moving, and revelatory experience. David is a living example of the deep interconnection that exists between all of us, whether we are conscious of it or not. The rest of us have a lot to learn from empaths. Part of the vision for Evolver included an online marketplace where products made by community members could be offered to others. The Alchemist Kitchen grew out of this marketplace. It's a botanical dispensary that offers the highest quality whole plant remedies, botanical medicines, and beauty products from the best artisanal herbal makers from across the country. You can find herbal products on the Alchemist Kitchen site to help you sleep better, reduce pain, boost energy, find calm, think sharper, and much more. And if you happen to be in New York City, come by the Alchemist Kitchen flagship location. It's at 21 East 1st Street between the Bowery and 2nd Avenue on the border between the East Village and Soho. You can have a state-changing herbal elixir from the Tonic Bar and chat with one of the staff herbalists about the products we've curated and what might be best for you. In my own experience, as I began to be aware of what I eat, cut out processed foods and refined sugar, and get in better shape through yoga, etc., my body's sensitivity to what I put into it increased. A lot. And I discovered that the right kind of plant medicine could be more effective than pharmaceuticals while being gentler on the system. And I started to pay attention more to what my body was telling me, which took some time because I grew up eating the worst kinds of junk 
and assumed that feeling bloated and sluggish was just part of the human condition. I discovered how the judicious use of plant allies could help to boost my system and shift me from worrying about warding off illness to maintaining a high level of wellness. On thealchemistkitchen.com, you'll find a blog with lots of information about herbal wellness and an assortment of products that will inspire you to see the connection between your body and the plant kingdom in a whole new way. The Alchemist Kitchen is devoted to the power of plants. And if you stop by the spot on East 1st Street, mention the Evolver podcast and get 10% off any purchase of herbal remedies or CBD. I'm curious how you found yourself in this place where you're doing these kinds of performances. What are the, you began as a director, as a, you were doing, you were doing television commercials. Mm-hmm. Um, and your background was in media. Mm-hmm. So you always have thought of this as an opportunity to create some kind of performance or media. Is that how that came forward for you? No, no, it was a much more surreal, strange integration of these two sides of myself. And I didn't see it coming. A couple of years ago, I was directing commercials, branded videos. I was occasionally making little documentaries that I was passionate about. And I was having a lot of trouble getting bigger documentaries I was passionate about funded. I would wake up every day and I would try to get work as a director or If I were lucky, I would direct something I wasn't particularly passionate about, and then I would try to make the thing that I really cared about. Slowly but surely, that work started to evaporate. My ability to try to hustle to make projects I cared about went away, and I was left with, just on an energetic level, no other open door than the introspective, internal, let's work out what's really happening on the inside door. It was like a classic depression. Yeah, it was a very classic depression. Um, there wasn't, there wouldn't be much interesting to watch if you'd had a camera on me for most of the last seven or eight years, uh, up until a couple of years ago. Uh, I was spending a lot of time just sitting at home, uh, heavy. I mean, I had a social life. I had a love life. I would get work sometimes. But the default to the place I would often return to was heaviness, sadness, combination of know-it-allness and confusion. And then there was one project I was really excited about, really passionate about. I had raised the money. I had um, relationships with all the people in the project that I needed to make the project. And I still wasn't able to get the film off the ground um, because the network stymied me. It's a long, boring, frustrating Hollywood-type story. And I lost my motivation after that, and and I fell into a real dark hole. And in that dark hole, I just switched my perspective, and I started looking inward instead of outward for the answers. So what is going on inside me? Why am I so depressed? What can I do about this? And the answers that emerged from that introspection are many of the usual ones, everything from meditation to exercise to yoga to time in nature Um, And then, of course, to plant medicine, to ayahuasca, to San Pedro, to LSD, which had been an old friend of mine, um, to mushrooms, to reading, to following things that brought me excitement, uh, to really listening to wise people who said things I didn't want to hear. That soup of helpful tools slowly, gradually reoriented me around what was naturally occurring within me, what was my thing to do, and that gave birth to uh, what we'll call empath, this this work, where I realized I was so sensitive to other people's experiences, I could embody them and show them back to them. At first, I was doing it in a much more one-on-one context. Uh, As you know, I did a bunch of readings at the Alchemist Kitchen, and my work is so visual that somebody saw me do it and said, you know what, what you're doing is a kind of performance art. And that, a light bulb went off in my head and I said, yes, it is performance art. Yes, I like that. It just really excited me. And uh, I found a gallery on the Lower East Side and did readings in front of an audience. So during the period of that depression, you had already 
begun to open up this, this talent that you have, which has to do, how would you describe it exactly? How would you give words to that? A sensitivity in my body to the emotional experience of whomever I'm tuning into. An empath, as I define it, and there are lots of different definitions of it, but as I define it, it's someone who feels the emotions of other people in their body as if those emotions were their own. So real simple, you're at a movie theater, someone sits down next to you, they're filled with anxiety, and you start feeling anxiety. It's not that their anxiety is triggering your anxiety, it's that you are absorbing their anxiety, like it's contagious. And that's all I mean when I use the word empath. So most people who identify with that are having experiences of other people's emotions in a haphazard way. They walk down the street, somebody's crying, they feel a little sad, they move on with their day. Most people who work professionally with people in sensitive areas, teachers, therapists, uh, social workers, et cetera, nurses, a lot of these people are good at their jobs because they are unconsciously tuning into the emotional experience of the person they're sitting with by feeling it themselves. This also leads to a lot of burnout or compassion fatigue or exhaustion. What I'm doing is just taking that same capacity and deliberately using it to help somebody. I sit with someone, I take their feelings into my body. It feels to me like I'm opening up a space in my chest. I absorb their their emotion into my own system, and then I have a subtle experience of it. So if they're sad, I'll feel subtly sad. And then what I do, and maybe this is my secret sauce, I allow that feeling to express itself fully through my body. So imagine if you're feeling a little bit frustrated, you can hold that feeling of frustration in, or you can pound the table or like tense your muscles so that they're really showing how frustrated you are. You're making, in a sense, a conscious choice to allow the emotion to move through your body. That's what I'm doing, but with somebody else's emotions. So I take their emotion into my body. I allow it to express itself through my muscles. And then my body contorts into these various shapes, depending on the emotion I'm expressing. I've learned how to decode the shapes my body is taking on. So sadness has a particular expression in my body. Happiness, joy, every emotion expresses itself differently through my body. So I, then I interpret what my body is doing and then share it with whomever I'm reading. Have you always known that it's somebody else's feeling that you're taking into your body? Or was that a process for you? That, and how did you discover that? What I discovered through primarily through, through plant medicine and primarily through ayahuasca was that my depression was the result of my having absorbed so many other people's emotions into my body. Working through my depression wasn't so much about me processing my own experiences, although there was some of that, but it was much more about me processing other people's experiences or other people's emotions in my own system. A small example could be my friend James was applying to law school. He was really nervous about his application. I was helping him through his application, and I was absorbing some of his nervousness. So there I am on ayahuasca feeling really nervous because I simply hadn't worked through these nerves that weren't even mine. And that was that's a trivial example, and it got deeper and deeper until I was working through my father's deep pain around what I experienced to be a, um, a traumatic childhood having to do dot, dot, dot with the Holocaust, of all things. So I mean, all the way up, up to intergenerational trauma that wasn't mine or that I had absorbed. And at the end of that process, I had worked through what seemed to be everything my body was yielding of other people's emotions until I was super sensitive and vulnerable to the emotions of everyone else around me. So you began, it was a plant medicine experience that gave you the, the shift in perspective that allowed you to see that perhaps this heavy thing that you're carrying may not entirely have been yours. That's exactly what happened. I mean, it fundamentally wasn't mine. So I would go to these ayahuasca ceremonies and I would have different intentions. They say when you go to a ceremony, it's good to have an intention. So I would have an intention. I want to make more money. I want to heal my trauma around water. I've always been afraid of water. I want to X. And, and no matter what my intention was, over many, many ceremonies, I kept getting the same feedback from, from the plants, which was, it's about other people. You have to process other people. And oftentimes I thought I kept looking inward for the solution and the solution was ultimately inward, but it wasn't mine. I would have visions of my dad's childhood or my friend's 
trauma or the person who served me coffee, their relationship with their girlfriend, I was just so absorbent. This is the kind of experience that a lot of people are talking about when they describe themselves as being quote-unquote empaths. I think so. Judith Orloff writes about this, that sense that you don't really have a clear boundary around yourself so you can distinguish easily those feelings that are coming through that are really belonging to your experience and those that are essentially in your field and you're twigging them somehow Mm -hmm. and responding to them. So for you, did that... You were by yourself in this process as a you and the plant medicine or Mm -hmm. you began to somehow be able to tell the difference. And then what did you do with those feelings that weren't yours? How did, when they identified, did you feel you needed to process them or did you feel that there was something else that you could do in order to protect yourself? That's both. I learned both basic tools of self-protection as an empath, the kind of thing that Judith outlines really well in her book. So I learned, for instance, for all you empaths out there, it's really powerful just to imagine a force field around yourself or a bubble. It can also be really powerful to imagine what people call a divine white light of protection. When you call in these kinds of tools, visualizations, they really do help you navigate the world on a day-to-day basis. But that's not going to be enough. I also learned how to release other people's emotions on a day-to-day basis as well. So there isn't, there literally hasn't been a morning that's gone by in three or four years where I haven't done an exercise where I imagine all this stuff that isn't mine flowing from the top of my head, down my whole body, and then through my feet into the center of the earth. I am, as I experience it, literally releasing other people's stuff from my system. So I learned a lot about that through no special means, Googling, like, I'm an empath, what do I do? Let me read you this book. Let me see what else is out there. Drew, this book is called The Empath Survival Guide. Yeah life strategies for sensitive people and for folks who are going through that kind of opening, awakening to the to that you know, challenging relationship to other people's stuff, it's very valuable, really yeah. useful uh, book to do, to, to refer to. The hardest stuff, the deepest stuff, I promise you for all you tortured empaths out there, you're not going to be able to release it through visualization. That's not going to work for processing the deep emotions of your lover or your family member or your best friend. These deeply entwined dynamics require much deeper healing in order to work through. And for those dynamics, you sometimes, and this is something new I think I'm bringing into the world, at least I haven't heard this message out there much, you actually have to acknowledge fully that you have taken on the emotions of another person and process those emotions as if they were your own. So in my case, it could be crying for my dad's relationship to his mother as if I were my dad, in order to fully process his trauma, which I have now absorbed as mine. As you you would do that, crying for your father, uh-huh. would you find, to begin with, you releasing something for yourself, did you find that it affected your father as well? On some subtle level, I want to say yes, but I'm, I'm not sure. I have felt sometimes that I'm doing the work for another person, Like there's sometimes where I'm actually in a reading, for instance, I can experience their experience and then work through it as if I'm co-regulating, in the words of one of my favorite teachers, Thomas Hubel, I'm co-regulating their nervous system with them by absorbing what's going on with them and then working through it with them. I think what I was doing with my father was for me. Uh, It might have residual positive effects for him, but I felt like I was working through my pain, which just so happened to have been his. Because you do hear about the power of healing a line healing the suffering of a family, that mm. there's somebody in the family who maybe is, bo- maybe is born with a particular empathetic, maybe yeah. not a, an empath's constitution, but an empathetic spot in the family to be the feeler effectively for everybody else. Totally. I, I think where I, where I feel like I've done more good than with my father is with my sister. Uh, so there's this concept in psychology, which is just the Western way of saying what you just said, which is of the identified patient, that somebody in the family takes on the the experience of the family and processes it for people. And I, I've definitely been the identified patient in my family, and I can feel, as I work through stuff, creating space for me and for my sister. She now has a path to follow. And just having that opening, I think, has lightened her load a little bit. I think she would agree if she were in the room. That I really sense. So this... This period when the depression came on, before then, did you have much of a spiritual interest at all? No, I mean, no. I was a strict, empirically minded, super rational, at least in my worldview, kind of person. I had a love of literature and of humanity and of art, 
Um, but these I thought were aesthetic preferences, not spiritual, not not indicative of any deeper spiritual truth. I was uh, an existentialist, let's call it, or a nihilist. This dam started to break bef- uh, years before I got into the empathic work I've been doing. It, it, it broke when an amazing woman in the midst of one of my depressive spells suggested I should talk to her psychic. And her I psychic? Th- her psychic, yeah. And how did that strike you? Stupid. I mean, like, why would I talk to a psychic unless I want to be entertained? And I don't find that that entertaining. To me, psychics fell into one of two categories. They were either frauds or they were uh, delusional. I was not interested in either. But my friend said, no, you have to talk to my psychic. And I said, no. And and she said, I'll pay for it. And I said, okay. And the psychic gave me a reading that didn't really sink deeply into me. But at the end, she said, you know, you're psychic. And I was very dismissive of that. But then over the next few months, years, I had so many experiences that I couldn't explain. Saying, so she she ended the reading by telling you that you're psychic. And in, in, yeah, in no uncertain terms, you are psychic. It's crucial for your development. This is part of who you are. And I thought this is BS. Okay. And so, then she was right. What can I tell you? <laughs> 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 okay. So what convinced you that she was right? So many. That hadn't happened before. You had not been having any kind of psychic thing. I would have told you I was perceptive. I probably would have run from the word intuitive. I was used to people asking me for my opinions about people. I would have strong sense of what's going on with people, and sometimes I would share that to the benefit or the detriment of whoever I was talking to. But I wasn't identified. I mean, I certainly had never identified with that word. So and I was smart. I'm putting quotation marks around that. I was perceptive. I was insightful. I definitely was not psychic in my own perspective. My, from my own perspective. So what made you think that you were? Experience after experience after experience. Like what? Uh, I get into a cab. The cab driver says hello. I get this vision of this same guy years before sitting at a desk doing math in a double entry notebook, looking happy. And I just say to him, like the words just fall from my mouth as if it's the only thing I could possibly say. I say to him, why did you give up being an accountant? And he says, how did you know I was an accountant? Oh, that's good. Uh, uh-huh. And I, I mean, I had so many, so many Those, moments like that. This just started happening. Like these things, un, they, no particular flag before they would show up. No, nothing afterwards that would, continue to resonate. It was just like, whoa, what was that? Whoa, what was that? Okay, I, I understand that a little bit. So I kind of <laughs> I kind of had a few moments like that myself. Oh, did anybody else notice that? Did anybody else see that? I just did that? Yeah. And generally, no, nobody noticed. <laughs> <laughs> like the, uh, the, the, the accountant turned cab driver noticed. He looked over and was like, whoa. Oh, yeah, well, that's good. <laughs> you were having that kind of sort of crack in the sky moment. Mm-hmm. I Around like the same time, the sky. yeah, it was like, oh, everything seemed to be okay before. Now, what, what, what that, what's that about? Try to, somebody explain this to me. Well, Nobody's explaining anything. And you're going into a depression mm-hmm. where you were just feeling this heaviness. Mm-hmm. And then you're, you've been working with psychedelics when you were younger, I guess. I've been working with, enjoy would probably be a better word. You were partying crazy <laughs> with LSD. Yeah, I was. At I one liked, point in one Yeah, in I liked life. LSD a lot and mushrooms. I've, I've yeah. you know, when I was a teenager, I, I love that stuff. But it didn't necessarily bring on profound mystical experiences. No. No. I, you know, it, it brought out this sense that the world is more layered than I otherwise would have thought. I remember being 18 and taking a bunch of mushrooms at the Van Gogh Museum and seeing spirits in the paintings and feeling like there's some magic in the universe that these tools open up. I mean, I wouldn't have put it that way, but that was my experience. I, I always had a sense of another layer of reality on which things were simultaneously operating and psychedelics brought me to that place. And I've always felt at home in that place. If you're tripping balls and you're lost, you want to find me because I know where you're at and I'm cool there. I've always been that guy. But I hadn't looked at psychedelics as healing so much till I was in the thick of it and and I started to orient not around success. Like, how do I make this film I want to do? How do I make more money? How, how do I show that I'm a super talented creative so that I can make enough money to keep doing it? These were the thoughts that were circling my head for so much of my 20s and early 30s. And then I switched from, okay, how do I just not feel like I want to die? Like, how do I wake up tomorrow and feel okay? What do I need to breathe and connect with human beings? And then psychedelics and plant medicine came in as a, as a, as a big part of the answer. So you're aware that you have some kind of psychic capability. Mm-hmm. 
that enables you to tune in somehow, though you don't necessarily have a lot of control None. over that. I mean, I'm doing readings randomly at parties. I'm getting stuff right. I'm getting stuff wrong. I'm having fun with it. I'm playing with it. But it's certainly, it wasn't something I felt comfortable charging people, for instance. It was an experiment. After, it took me years to go, I am psychic. And then it took another few years of experimenting before I could even conceive of like calling myself a psychic. Somehow these things began to weave together into your own sense of, what you should be doing in the world. Oh, it's super clear. It's, 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 it's not that they slowly over time wove together. It was that there was a moment of revelation. And what was that moment? The moment of revelation was at Burning Man. What year? It was three years ago. So I guess it's 2015. And I went to Burning Man and I decided I was going to give psychic readings as my gift to the community. And the universe was on my side. I opened up the list of all the camps and I found a camp called the Psychic Taxi Cab Camp, which couldn't have been more perfect. I went to the Psychic Taxi Cab Camp and there was a pedicab in the middle of the camp, which was the Psychic Taxi Cab. The purpose of the cab was that it would take you wherever you needed to go as long as you didn't know where that was. The psychics would know where you're supposed to go. <laughs> that, was the, that, was the, that was the gag, but it was only operational at night and during the day it just sat there. And I went to the woman who ran the camp, whose name I still remember because we've since become a bit of friends. Her name is Trace Jimenez. And I went to Trace and I said, hey, can I requisition your uh, taxi cab for readings? And of course, like, of course you can. And then before I knew it, I had a sign and I had a barker, psychic readings. I had a line and I was doing reading after reading after reading. The readings were erratic. I mean, sometimes I would have real incredible moments and other times it would be odd. This woman comes in. And I tune into her and I get this vision of her doing gardening. And I see she's really enjoying working with the working with the dirt and her hands are really deep in there and she feels so alive. And I just say, oh, I can feel your connection to earth and to gardening and this is where you need to be. And you're sitting here just so I can reflect that back to you. And she looks at me like I'm like nuts. Like I've said something totally off. And she says, I'm from New York. I hate gardening. I don't like using my hands. I mean, I'm a teacher. So if you want, you could think of the students as my weeds. But I mean, that feels like a stretch and it felt like a stretch to me. So I just apologized. I'd, I'd missed the mark. The next woman sat down. I gave her a reading. I don't remember what she said. And at the end of that, she said, oh, I wish you had said that I was I was so feeling gardening the whole time you were sitting here. I've just been so called to gardening. And I realized that I had crossed my wires, that there was a, I'd taken the reading from the next person in line into the person I was sitting with and just screwed up in this funny way. Let me, let me get that straight. Yeah. So somehow you just, you're getting psychic information, but you got it out of order. Yeah. I, I crossed wires. I was t trying to tune into the person in front of me, and I guess I was tuning into the person over there. That you know, you just don't a little hear that. glitch. <laughs> <laughs> just a little glitch. You don't hear that often among psychics. It's like, oh my god, I just read the wrong person. You don't hear that. I'm getting the guy who's like third in line. Because you know, it's it's uh, so much of this. Uh, I feel like going on a tangent rant around capitalism. I mean, and marketing. There's such pressure to put yourself out there as complete. And it doesn't matter what you're selling. If you're if you're a psychic, you don't really go amateur psychic learning. You know, you you want to go. Oh, I've got the goods. Even if you do have the goods, there's this compulsion to put yourself out there further along. And we've got such a horrible cultural narrative around fake it till you make it. Present yourself as a finished product. Brands present themselves as perfect guides. Like, so we have a culture of bullshit around how we present ourselves. And so it's really hard for people. Who are learning or navigating to acknowledge, hey, I'm still working on this. Like, no, I don't, I don't think there's a psychic in the world who's fully formed when they first start tuning in and talking to other people. But by the time you're calling yourself a psychic, there's such pressure to be like, I get everything right or my accuracy is perfect. And this, I, I ugh, okay, end of end of um, anti-capitalist spiritual rants. And back to no, but what, uh, clearly, what we need is the school for psychics opportunity for people can go and work with a psychic in training. You basically want to be able to go to Professor X's, you know, uh, uh, mansion in Westchester <laughs> and check out the students and work with them and see, give them an opportunity to develop. That's yeah, that's how that's, these things should go, that's, right? That's true. I mean, but my point is even the professor, I mean, even is still a work in progress. I mean, even I'm my accuracy is now much higher than it was when I was sitting there at Burning Man, but I still get things wrong. And a part of every reading that I do, I say there's a chance that what I'm saying won't resonate, won't be true. And if that's true, let it go. I, I really try to incorporate genuine humility, not false humility, where I'm awesome. I want to acknowledge that too, but genuine humility into what I'm doing. So I'm 
I'm at, I've done this, this mistaken reading where my wires were crossed, and then this guy sits in front of me. And Guy, if you happen to be listening, I would love to reconnect with you. I haven't connected with you since Burning Man. So you sat with me, oh, person whose name I don't remember. And in your case, I took your hand. And I took your hand because I felt it would help me to make sure I was tuning into you. And I took this guy's hand and I felt these butterflies in my stomach. And I don't really get butterflies. I knew immediately that this is not my own experience. I started to describe my experience of this man's butterflies. And I said, okay, you're, you're, you're really nervous about something. And I had an intuition. This is about a job you're about to take. And you're scared of this job. You're, you're afraid you're going to screw it up. And then I felt this underlying sense of calm as well, like, oh, no, I've got this. Ultimately, it's going to be okay. And you know when you're giving advice to a friend or somebody and you just have it, you know exactly what they need to hear, you're just in that moment so perfectly and you're connected to their needs. That's how I felt. And I said to him, whatever you're going to do, you're really aligned with your highest purpose or something like it. And he said, and I opened my eyes and he was crying, and he told me that he was about to take a job at a rape crisis center. And he was really nervous about re-traumatizing people who had just been so deeply traumatized. And I just said, you are going to do that. You are going to make mistakes. It is going to hurt some people, but that's okay because you seem like you're really ready for this and you're gonna do much more good than harm. And we hugged and it felt really great. I learned this new form of reading in that moment and have been doing that with increasing accuracy ever since and with similar kinds of feedback to what that first man gave me. So it has to do with touching the body. It has to do with allowing their emotional experience into my body and touch is the surest way to know that I've got you and not the next person. But if we're just in a room by ourselves, I don't actually need to touch. It just makes the signal clear. So at this point, you're really starting to step into your capabilities. Yeah. You're feeling this... You can identify yourself with being this person who has got these capabilities in the world. Yeah. And you're looking at how do, what do you do with that? Exactly. What do you do with that? Well, that's, that takes us to how we met. Um, you know, I, I was just playing with it. I was doing readings at parties sometimes. Um, people would ask me, oh, I heard you do this thing, and then I would do it. And then a, a mutual friend of ours put together an event at a loft in Soho. And I had a little station at this party, uh, like a healing party. And Ken Jordan himself came to me. And I, I think I took your hand, if I remember correctly, and I tuned into what I felt was going on with you. Yeah, that was a shocking experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, say more. How is it shocking, Ken? Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. What I found that night was you were very quickly able to tune in to a trauma, trauma not exactly a trauma, but a, a real, an area of, of personal pain and suffering that I had completely blocked out of my conscious mind. That I was mm. like, felt I was just not going to deal with that part of myself. <laughs> and you were like basically presencing it in such a way that I had no choice but to stare at this very embarrassing oh. issue, which, you know, is just, you know, coming out of a, you know, breakup with my wife and dealing with certain issues around that, that breakup that had a lot to, you know, there was just a lot of anger and frustration in a particular ball in my belly, which is kind of how you were presencing it. Mm. And I was like, oh gosh, yeah, I guess that's really there. Got to deal with that. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, so now David knows this about me. This is, <laughs> which is like nobody else was knowing, understood this, you know, it's like something that, you know, once it became, once you showed it 
to me. I'm looking at myself in this mirror that is you. And the amazing thing about that experience, by the way, was not simply that you were kind of subtly suggesting in some way that this was something I have to look at, but in fact, you were physically manifesting that pain Mm -hmm. and frustration in an extremely dramatic way. (laughs) The two of us were just like in a corner behind the curtain, sitting on somebody's bed, I think, Uh cross-legged, facing each other. And you were just like it writhing in, <laughs> in unbearable pain. Oh, and fury, absolute fury. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> shit, that's me. <laughs> and that was me at that, at that uh, moment. And I was like, that was, that was pretty good. So, um, and we actually, you, know, you said we met them. We actually have known each other uh, for a long time before then, but not well. We have yeah. a number of close friends in common. And we've crossed paths like in group situations, but we never really sat down and had a conversation. So I was like, oh, so that's when Faye mentions to me that David's got these, this is what she's talking about. Okay, mm-hmm. that's what that's about. Interesting. So we'd recently, were, I guess around that time, we we're opening the Alchemist Kitchen and we were doing readings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you invited me to do readings after that, after that experience we had together. And I started to do readings at the Alchemist Kitchen. Which was very cool. And a lot of people were responding to that in the spot, in the, in the space, really appreciating, you know, the readings you were doing there. And so you create, and I mean, in a lot of ways, the Alchemist Kitchen was my launching pad. That's where I first, that's, that was my transition from I'm playing with this to I'm a semi-professional. And uh, it was the first time I was systematically charging people, which felt really good. Charging, just to ask, yeah. charging people made you feel good because? This is an extra level of it's like stepping into a level of responsibility I hadn't yet felt comfortable doing. I was like, oh, okay, this is probably because on a deeper level, I, I hadn't yet outgrown and I'm still working to outgrow the unconscious association of making money with worth. So by charging, I'm somehow feeding my unconscious the idea that it's the work it's doing is valid, whereas before it's not valid because I'm not getting paid. Thanks, Mom, for teaching me that as a very young age. I'm still trying to unlearn it. Uh, probably that's part of it. Yeah, okay. And there's also a way in which when you charge people, they often, not always, tend to take it more seriously. They show up for the experience more. I'm that's paying true. $25 for 15 minutes. I'm going to pay attention to what this man says. I like that. So you're developing this as a practice. Mm -hmm. I'm curious how you compare the kind of reading that you do to the readings that other people do as you become more conscious of your own specific ways of working and how you frame that for a client or for yourself. Because as one develops these kinds of capabilities and begins to offer them like this to clients, there really, there isn't a professional school you can go to to help you figure out how to define the work that you're doing in the marketplace and how you describe it to a potential client, somebody who's looking for what it is that you offer. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about your process there. Such a good question and still unresolved in me. And I'm marketing savvy. I'm good at taglines. I'm good at positioning things so people understand them. We're in my wheelhouse on one level. But you made TV commercials. Yeah, I made TV commercials. I've worked at ad agencies. I'm an exquisitely gifted copywriter. And yet, distilling what I do for people so that they can process it and bring me on or hire me or pay me is still challenging for me. So I, I... I've been less and less called to do one-on-one work, which has made my distillation process irrelevant. And I've been doing more and more shows. And those are a little bit easier to talk about, or people just talk about them. That I've found good language for. I'm doing intuitive readings as performance art, or I'm doing readings in front of an audience. Here's my process of how I do it. I embody your emotional experience through my body and show it back to you. The, the work that you that you saw me do one-on-one and, then, and that I've been doing more and more in front of audiences that feels like a show. There's a real magic. If you see me read somebody I've never met before, I promise you and promise the audience I'm hiding nothing. I have no other information other than what we all see. I take their hand and I describe their emotional experience layer by layer in ways that deeply resonate with them and are specific enough to them that you know it's them and not just some random, you've been through challenges and now you're 
coming through them kind of BS. And then they are deeply affected by it and it's healing to them to have themselves reflected. That's a show. In one-on-one context, I don't find as much value personally in the magic of knowing stuff about you that there's no way I could know. So I reserve the, how did he know that? Oh my God, for performance. And if I sit with someone just one-on-one, I'm as likely to tune in emotionally to what's happening with you using my intuition as I am to ask you, hey, what's happening with you? Tell me, let's talk about it. In a one-on-one session, it becomes an interplay between what you already know and what my intuition tells me, and we just work toward it together. The the one-on-ones are, because I'm doing less and less of them and, and want to do Truthfully, I want to do almost none of them. Um, Why don't you want to do them? I find myself so much more drawn to video, to theater, to performance, to podcasting. I, I have a, a list of people who are willing to sit with me for $250 or $300 or now maybe even $500 for an hour. And the amount of energy it, would, it takes me to schedule that and make sure that that I don't flake and they don't flake and go meet them is so hard for me. Whereas you tell me there's a podcast interview at one o'clock in Soho and I am here. You know, like I want to do that. I want to show up. I think it's because on a deep level, I'm a storyteller. I'm a communicator. I'm a marketer. I'm a propagandist. I have my, my purpose feels more about shifting the culture than individual healing. Healing is a really interesting journey I took personally and now to help other people heal. But I think at the end of the day, if I'm a shaman, I'm a shaman of the culture. Working with an individual client, how does it affect you? After you've done an in-depth session like that, Uh what do you take out of that session? What are you carrying? Does it drain you? Rarely. I mean, it it can if I do too many in a row. It can drain me, but my hygiene is really good. I have to clean myself. So there's like kind of spiritual or energetic hygiene I do. So if I do a reading and I tune in, I make sure that I let it go or release it. And then even if I don't do it in that moment, I'll do it the following morning. And I'm I'm really careful about people's boundaries, not just the boundaries they consciously hold in their minds, but actually like the deeper boundaries. On some level, when we sat together, even though you were trying to push it away, you weren't on a deep level trying to push it away because I wouldn't have surfaced it. It wouldn't have been healing for you or helpful to you if you didn't want that seen and shared on a deep level. The danger is when I go into people's spaces where they don't want to be seen or they're really genuinely hiding. That's where it gets that's where it gets risky. And then another part of the personal one-on-one stuff that I haven't yet mastered, and this is something that therapists obviously need to master, is boundaries like actual boundaries. Okay, I'm going to see you once every three weeks or once every two weeks. And I have this, as so many empaths do, this deep sense of what's going on and I want to help. And it's really hard to go, oh, I could be of service here, but I'm going to prioritize myself. I much prefer this. You're really interested in the impact you can have on the culture. I am. That's what I'm most excited about in the whole world. The way that that I've seen you approach essentially public performance and also the teaching that you do, mm-hmm. the online classes that you've done. Love those too. The classes that you've done have focused on ways that someone who is an empath not only can take care of themselves or defend themselves against the emotional material that's coming at them that is not theirs, but actually how to shift that sensitivity into a power that they can work with to enhance their lives and to enhance the lives of those around them. It's a flip Mm -hmm. from the standard way that people think of being an empath, Mm -hmm. where it's, I am so empathetic that I'm just being pummeled. How do I keep myself from feeling so completely abused to once you're capable of, of, of defending yourself properly, of putting up the appropriate kinds of shields and understanding what's happening for you as an empath, you can actually be much more constructively engaged in creating a world that makes better room for people who are empathetic. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you help people to move into that power. The most important thing to learn if you are sensitive, deeply sensitive to the emotional experiences of other people, the thing that separates those people who become masters of that capacity and those people who are ultimately enslaved by this pummeling, as you describe it, is the way in which you process guilt. By that, I mean, if you are 
tuned into the emotional experiences of others, there is a high probability that in order for you to be okay, you need them to be okay. And that means you start using your intuition and your empathic abilities to make sure they feel okay. This means that you are disconnected from your own experience unless you are doing this consciously. The reason why you are likely to be doing this unconsciously is because you are afraid of the pain that you will feel when they feel pain. You will experience that pain. You'll experience both the pain they're feeling in the absence of your help, and you will also experience what has been driving you, which is guilt. So many empaths have learned that if they don't help, something is wrong with them. They are screwing up. It's, it's the cultivation of what might feel at first like callousness, but is ultimately self-care. Okay, this person seems to need my help or would benefit from my help, but I am toast. I have nothing more to give. What stops me from saying, hey, I hear you, but I can't focus on this right now? What is that? And that's almost certainly guilt. So can you sit with the guilt you feel at quote-unquote abandoning someone? And if you can learn to sit with that, then you can start to decide when and if to deploy your capacity. That's, that's probably the most important. Beyond, say, doing readings for people. What are examples where that really can make a difference for others? Okay, I have a generalized theory here. Empaths can do a lot of good in the world because we intuitively feel behind the emotional masks we've all been taught to wear. That's, that's the essence of the superpower. Somewhere around three, four, five, six, a child learns that what they're feeling isn't safe to share and that if in order to be truly loved, they need to pretend to feel otherwise. And that habit accumulates over a whole lifetime until we have both the inner experience that we're having within ourselves and then the outer experience, what we're willing to show people. An empath comes in and he or she intuitively grasps the inner experience and can relate to that person on a deep level. That's the gift. And so how do you see the world changing through your work publicly as an empath? What is it you want to see? I have two messages for the universe, for the world that I, that I think emerge through my work. And the first is the one you shared in our work when we did that session together, which is I truly believe and also embody the idea that all emotions, no matter what they are, rage, hate, jealousy, emotions we're used to vilifying, they are all okay. Whatever internal experience you are having is totally real and legitimate, no matter what it is. That's a obvious statement from a therapeutic perspective and a revolutionary statement from a cultural one. And what I'm doing when I sit with someone is I'm bringing, truly bringing non-judgmental awareness to their inner state. If you are filled with hatred, I can see that, I can feel that, and I am okay with that. And I don't blame you for it at all. I don't believe that we have a choice over what we're feeling. I believe we have some choice over how we relate to it. We can choose whether to surface it or whether to push it down. I'm not even sure we have a choice over that, but if we have a choice, it's over how we relate to our feelings and it's not over the feelings themselves. If we can start to own that truth, that what somebody's feeling isn't their fault and that we never, ever, ever, ever need to tell them to feel another way, we are opening up space for people to be themselves. And that's the world I want to live in. I want to live in a place where everyone can be themselves. Asterisk, that doesn't mean that all expressions of feelings are created equal. Hatred is okay, and punching somebody in the face may not be. So there's a lot to learn about how to process the emotions we're feeling and how to express them. But if we tell somebody it's not okay to hate, then we're actually increasing the probability that they will punch somebody in the face. The urge to express that hatred will be even greater. Whereas if we say it's okay to be full with hatred, hatred is a natural response to having your boundaries deeply violated. That's totally normal. And it would be good to say things like, I am filled with hatred. It would be good to journal about your hatred. It might even be good to yell at the person you hate. That might be much better than punching them in the face. So... Yeah, so please tell me the second. Okay, so the second, the second is uh, is that magic is real. I like that one. Yeah, me too. Magic. I mean, I think that's what maybe unites us is is, and what your podcast is about. There's been so much progress in the last few years around the healing possibilities of psychedelics, but there hasn't been much yet around the integration into the culture of the truths that psychedelics point to. We know on an intuitive level 
that telepathy is real. Psychic phenomena are real. We know, I, I can tell you, that I actually can feel what you're feeling on a deep level in my body and reflect it back to you. I make that claim. But the culture has not caught up to these claims. The culture is still pointing at us and saying, who are you? Prove yourself. The culture is still prioritizing the rational, the scientific, the empirically obvious over the intuitive, the felt sense, the heart. And I have had it. The world's problems will not be solved with spreadsheets. These problems will not be solved with a bunch of men getting together in rooms trying to figure stuff out. It won't be solved with goal-oriented thinking. Um, it's going to be solved by coming into one's own body, one's own experience, and allowing that experience to flow through. We've got billions of years of wisdom stored in our muscles and in our hearts. And instead of listening to that wisdom, we've been beating that wisdom up with what can make money. I think the ultimate solution to that, if there is one, is the reprioritization of the magical, the intuitive, the felt experience, ghosts, supernatural, all this stuff that connects us to who we really are. So you were saying before that you really had no kind of spiritual or consciousness background yeah. before your psychic capabilities started to become mm -hmm. present. That's what cracked me open, yeah. And as, so I'm curious, as you got cracked open, and I assume maybe through plant ceremonies, but there were probably other, maybe mm -hmm. other things as well, Yeah. other pieces of the puzzle began to fall into place. So you kind of would see your own capabilities within this larger context of a kind of consciousness mm -hmm. that is shared, let's say. Absolutely. Okay. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how those different pieces of the puzzle became present for you. If you take a bunch of acid, you will, I don't care who you are, you will start having the experience of signs. Subtle things that you might have missed will become filled with meaning. And sometimes you will just know what you're supposed to do. And what you're supposed to do might be to walk to the kitchen and have a bowl of Cheerios. And that could be the most impressive and powerful thing you could do. There's a sense of uh, an underlying meaning and purpose that comes through. And then you go back to your regular life and signs become trivial. Little coincidences. Oh, I saw that person at a party and then I saw that person at another event. Okay, well, that's interesting. Then the more you come to terms with the reality of magic and the underlying sense that there's some clever meaning maker at the center of the machine and that you are somehow co-creating that, uh, the more running into somebody three times in a week means something. And you can say, oh, okay, what are we supposed to do here? What is going on? There's this, uh, there's this place along the path that anyone can get to if they do enough work where you step into your own natural capacity more or less effortlessly. It's like, okay, this is what I got and it's just flowing through me. And when you start finding that place, you'll start seeing other people who are in that place. And you take your place on the spiritual soccer field and you go, okay, like I'm a midfielder, I'm a center fielder, I'm a goalie. And there's no issue about who's got which role. You just know it. The, the way we've structured society is a really crappy simulacrum of the ultimate way it could be structured if we came from who we really are, if we were oriented around our true capacity and our true potential. I'm making up a job here. My job might be strategic consultant for Deloitte helping figure out supply chain management. And that's a, that's a good enough guess for what I'm supposed to do on this earth because I feel somewhat excited by the work and I'm creating value. And that kind of holds up within our current system. That holds up within our current system. But on a deeper level, like maybe what you are is the person who really knows how to put people together. You've always had that magical power. And if you can stop defining yourself as a supply chain expert and start defining yourself as a magical people connector where, where resources need to flow, then all of a sudden you're now embodying your truth and so much magic is possible. And then I, as a professional communicator, can now speak about you in a way that's really exciting. And suddenly we're creating magic together on a whole new level. What I share with you, as you describe this, is this sense that having a couple of things becoming present leads to an awareness that there's a lot more of an interconnected yes. thing in play. Two things for me 
happened that shifted everything. At a certain point, one was an awareness that as I opened my heart, things flowed in a way I wasn't aware of before. And the other was that in order to be fully in that flow, I basically had to surrender and let go of any sense that I had before that I am in control and yeah. I am making things happen. There is no I. Yeah, that goes away. Yeah. <laughs> It'll resurface, but it basically yeah. goes away. And, and often what you find in, in, in the way that, that uh, those experiences get described is there's a kind of death that happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I died that way. Do you remember a particular moment? Few. I remember I took a bunch of psilocetin, I think is what it was called, which is similar to, to psilocybin, maybe the same. And I trance danced around looking at the moon, um, muttering to myself, there is no I for about two hours. It was a pretty clear message. In so many different ayahuasca ceremonies, I'm just like, okay, here I go away. I'm just being taken. Uh, who is I? Ah, ah, ah. And also my work. I'm on the stage. I sit with someone. I tune in. I take their experiences into my body, and I share what I feel they're feeling. What makes it interesting is that there is the theoretical separation of me and them. I am taking on your stuff. But really, one level up, what's mine and what's yours at that point? We go through these different stages of development. Stage zero, we're like, there is no I, there is no you. There's just this ball of experiences, which is, I imagine, what a kid is experiencing or a baby. And then we start putting up lines, which is very healthy. This is me, this is you. And then we spend a lot of time with those lines, and some of us never outgrow those lines. But then there's another place where we just revert back to the original place and go, actually, there is no me and there is no you at the end of the day. Huh, I was right all along. Here's something else I've noticed too, which is it's become very difficult for me to say things that are not resonant within my body. I'm wearing a white shirt right now. If I say I'm wearing a black shirt, my whole body contracts and I feel it and it's literally unpleasant. If I say I'm wearing a white shirt, which I am, I feel just naturally a little bit calmer. It seems like I have less choice over what I am expressing. I can only express what feels true to me. So that means that it's not really me deciding. I mean, I could say things that feel untrue, but it would really be unpleasant. So that's a somatic knowing. Yeah. It's a body knowing. Yeah. And the truth isn't of me. The truth is just like what some consciousness that happens to be inhabiting my body has an experience of being real. But it doesn't feel like that sentence. Where did that sentence come from? I'm not thinking this through and then sending a dart of words into the center of the target. At my best, I'm just allowing the things that are emergent through my body to come out my mouth. And that happens to be my gift. That's, that's what I'm at. That's what I'm doing. It's just what's happening. Because the body knows what's true. Yes. In my line of work, I know a couple of empaths. Um, what I had them tell me is that they can clue into the other person, the person that they're talking to, that person's somatic awareness of truth. That's exactly what I'm doing all the time. Yeah. Perfect description. And that the somatic awareness of truth can go beyond your own personal conscious awareness. Yep. It can go beyond your own idea of um, what am I doing this moment? Who have I been historically? Who do I feel certain feelings about? It can go to where am I going to be a year from now? What is the right fit for me in my life at this point in terms of the choices that are in front of me? That there's a deep somatic awareness that essentially vibrates out that someone who is an empath who has developed that skill or let me has a particular talent that can be cultivated can pick up. Great. And that's a lot of when I do one-on-ones, that's pretty much what I'm doing. You know, if somebody says, I don't know what to do about this relationship, I'll feel like, no, that's not true. You do know exactly what to do about this relationship. You're just telling yourself a story that you don't know because it's really comfortable for you to say you don't know stuff. And then they'll be like, oh, uh, uh, oh yeah. Which is an extraordinary thing because if all of us do really know, we can learn how to know ourselves at least, even if we're not, we're not yeah. gifted to be empaths in that way. But we can essentially yep. know what's true for ourselves. Yep. And it's not, quote unquote, true in the traditional materialist sense of right and wrong or going back to classic 
philosophical schools of the early 20th century that were, you know, so specific, you know, rationalist. But embodied it's, truth. It's an embodied truth, a somatic truth. I, I love where you're at on this. I, I, I agree. I, for all, but I want to say for all those people listening who are like, I have, especially men, I have no idea how to tap into what's actually true for me in my body. What are these dudes talking about? First of all, I, I hear you out there and you are not alone. There, are, I would say most people have no idea what it means to tap into their embodied experience of truth. So don't let us uh, uh, spiritual types make it sound too easy for you. Um, and and I, the last thing I want to do is trigger your shame. It's okay that you don't know what it means to tap into a somatic experience of truth. And I would just say, start where you can. So you can, you can um, let's say you don't even know how you're feeling. The question of how I'm feeling just generates a, uh, I don't know, I feel okay. See if you can feel what it is to uh, feel okay. Don't trivialize that uh, trivial seeming experience. Okay, I'm sitting there and I'm feeling uh, like a little bit of tension in my ankle. Uh, There's a subtle bit of pressure around my chest. Oh, I just had a thought about something that makes me nervous. Now my head is spinning a little bit. That process, even starting from, I don't know how I'm feeling, to just tuning into the subtle experiences you're having is the path that we're talking about. There's no other path. So the more you tune into your actual embodied experience as it is moment to moment, you'll eventually get to a place where you're going to be able to say, this is the right person to marry, or I need to change careers. These are skills that can be developed, that can be learned by anybody. Oh, yeah. That's part of your human right, is to tap into your own experience. It, can we be here for any other reason than to have our own experience? Like, what else are we doing? If we're just having other people's experiences or we're telling ourselves what our experience should be and ignoring our own, then what is what does the life even mean at that point? It seems in the last few years that, that empaths have become a thing. Mm-hmm. My timing is good. Your timing is very good. Yeah. You're on time. You're, you're totally it was an on accident, time. but a happy one. <laughs> and I'm wondering, is that because there are more empaths? Is this something that is being presented by the culture, that more people mm. are becoming aware of this capability in themselves? Or is it that we are now just starting to notice and give space to people who have been, who have always held that sensitivity, but we haven't acknowledged it? I don't know. I love the question. I don't know. What, what, what's coming up for me, what the, the answer that I feel like giving, which might not be true, is that because we've made so little space for sensitivity over the last few years, the people who are sensitive, like me, are starting to show up and say, hey, wait a second. We need to. We need credit for this, or we need space for this. And by that, I mean, like, there's nothing more toxic to empathetic people than, than highly sensitive empaths, than like loud blasting music at the restaurant, than the invasion of social media and distraction into every single experience that we're having, into the, the wholesale elimination of human connection as a value and its replacement by the obsession with what value you're creating in this consumerist society. So as we've, we've destroyed whatever vestiges we might have had, at least in American culture, of real human connection, um, there probably is this urge on the part of people like me saying, wait, wait a second, hold on, my humanity counts, and I'm going to start standing up for myself. And so the word empath takes on more and more meaning. Or, or it could also be that we are so much more interconnected now than we ever were, thanks in part to the same technology I was just demonizing. We're so in one world right now that the idea that we're all interconnected in the body makes a lot more sense. Like we now have a, a metaphor for what I'm talking about physiologically uh, everywhere. David, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much, Ken, for having me. Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on my website, www.empath.nyc. You can also find me on Instagram at empathnyc. And if you go to my website, you can uh, find my YouTube channel through there or my Facebook page. And I have events all the time and I'm going to be doing some more video work coming up. And um, yeah, please come, come join my empath party. We'll do that. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Ken. 
I want to thank David Savage again for being a guest on the program, and thank you for listening. I just want to say that I've been getting a wonderful response to the show so far. It means a lot to hear back from you and to know that this is resonating. But please, do me a favor. Don't just write to me. Post a comment on iTunes. It really makes a difference in how many people we can reach. It feels a little weird asking, and it's not something I like to do, but if you could just write three words on iTunes, that would be awesome. You can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast and on Facebook at The Evolver Social Movement. Remember to subscribe to The Evolver on iTunes, Acast, or on the podcatcher of your choice. And our email is theevolver at evolver.net. I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the entire Acast team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album The Secret Song. And our interstitial music is Sunu by The Human Experience and Rising Appalachia, from their album Soul Visions. Please check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.